Amen. Well, um, a few weeks ago was Easter Sunday, and our Easter sermon, if you remember, was not a typical uh, Easter sermon, and I planned it that way. That was intentional. I've been planning that for months. Well, today is, of course, Mother's Day, and um, this is also not a typical Mother's Day sermon, so I'm warning you up front. I did not plan this uh, this way, but this is just where we landed in Second Samuel. Um, and unfortunately, or in God's providence, I guess I should say, it is a very tragic story about a grieving mother. Um, and so I'm not going to sugarcoat, uh, sugarcoat it. I'm going to give it to you straight. And I'm going to trust the providence, uh, the providence of God that this story is uh, exactly what he wants us to consider this morning because that's just where we are. So 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse number 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, we don't know exactly when during the reign of David this famine took place because chapter 21 does not chronologically follow chapter 20. Everybody kind of agrees that the last few chapters of 2 Samuel is just kind of these random things that are just kind of added. Um, And so we don't know when this happened. We also don't know exactly when Saul broke Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites. The scriptures don't tell us, but apparently at some point during the reign of Saul, he broke the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people, but they were protected by this covenant that Joshua made with them when the Israelites entered into the promised land. In fact, if you go back and read this story, the Gibeonites tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them. And it was a kind of a really interesting story. Uh, they led him to believe that they were from this distant land, that they were going to be his neighbors, when in fact they were literally living in the land of Canaan. And so when the people of Israel discovered the deception, they wanted to slaughter the Gibeonites. And Joshua stood in their way. Joshua allowed them to live because he had already made this covenant with them. Now, do you remember what a covenant is? We've talked about this several times over the last two years. It is basically an Old Testament contract, but instead of signing papers, what they did was they cut animals in half and then walked between them. And it was a bloody, messy thing. And the idea behind covenant was this. If, if someone breaks the terms of this agreement, you're saying, may this happen to me, right? What we did to the animals, that's what I deserve if I break the covenant. And so God is saying, Saul broke Joshua's covenant, but notice that God is deciding to punish Israel for Saul's sin during the reign of David. Long time after Saul is now dead. So David 
had to deal with the consequences of someone else's sin. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Now, there's a lot of different opinions about this, a lot of different people looking at this story in different ways. I'm convinced that David is dealing with the consequences of Saul's sin in this moment because God wanted him to, first of all, but secondly, because David was the king. What Saul did was he broke a national covenant. Okay, so this was not an isolated individual sin. Saul was representing the entire nation of Israel as their king when he decided to spill the blood of the Gibeonites on the land. And so now David, the king, representing the nation of Israel, is going to have to make restitution for that as the king. So think of it like this. If the President of the United States is caught assaulting someone on the White House lawn, who pays the penalty for that crime? In theory, it would be the President, right? He did it. He's caught. He suffers the consequences. But if the President orders an attack on another country and starts a war, who pays for that? Well, we all do, (laughs) right? He got us into the mess, but now, because he's our representative, our country is at war. And I think that's the right way to think about this, and specifically because God says something in Deuteronomy 24, 16 that applies here. He says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So what I want to suggest to you is that David is not paying the penalty for Saul's sin. David is dealing with the consequences of his sin. And there is a difference, okay? In the same way, or in a similar way, I may not be guilty of the sins of my American forefathers or even of my family tree, but I'm still dealing with the consequences of their sin. You see the difference? Right. And so we have all inherited the problems that were caused by other people's sin. That makes sense. And I think that's the right way to think about this text. Number two. Verse number two. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Um, And I just want to pause here and say, I think it's worth pointing out. This is another example of someone in the Bible doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. We've seen this several times, and we talked about this specifically several months ago. Our intentions when we do something... It, it doesn't really matter. If we're committing sin, we're committing sin. It doesn't matter why we're committing sin. And we all love to come up with reasons to justify our actions. But our intentions don't matter. Our intentions will not soften God's response to sin. He doesn't give us a pass because we thought we were doing the right thing. Remember the T.S. Eliot quote that I shared with you? Most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. 
And so Saul did the wrong thing for the right reasons, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Verse 3. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Notice in verse 3 that word atonement. This is the first time that that word appears in the Bible since the time of Moses. Okay, since the, the law was given. It's not found anywhere else in Samuel. And I think that is significant. So you remember, atonement is the idea that something must be done to make things right in a relationship. Something must be, uh, something must be accomplished. Something has to happen in order for us to reconcile. And notice also that the Gibeonites are not looking for money or land to make that restitution. What are they looking for? Let's keep reading. David said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that's Saul, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So they don't want money. They don't want land. They want blood. And they want these men put on display in Saul's hometown. And specifically, if you read into the Hebrew, what I think they're asking for is... They want to hang the dead bodies of these seven men on large stakes in the ground so everyone can see them. That's what they ask for. And shockingly, that's what David gives them. Verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, if you remember, David had made his own covenant with Jonathan. And so he's trying to honor Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites without betraying his own covenant with Jonathan. So I want you to just notice kind of this overarching theme, the importance of the covenant and that even kings were required to keep them. Okay, so that's just kind of a side note, but... An important one. Verse 8. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Aramoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholite. Maholite. Verse 9. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. 
want you to notice that the Gibeonites see this atonement as an act of worship. They hang these men on stakes in the ground on the mountain, it says, before the Lord. And this is how they died. And as Christians, it is utterly impossible not to think of the cross when we read this. Okay, you see that? But what's interesting is we still don't know. Is this what God wanted? Or is the writer just telling us what happened? That's a really important question. Is this what God wanted them to do? Or is this just what happened? And then we come to the most depressing part of the story. And this is why I said this isn't... Not the text I would have selected for Mother's Day. Okay? Verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. And you're not going to find this verse in any children's storybook Bibles. And it would be easy for me to read this verse and just kind of quickly move on. Because talking about it is going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because I want this verse to speak to us. This is a mom. This is a grieving mom. This is a mom making a campsite underneath the corpses of seven men. Five of them are her nephews. Two of them are her sons. She gave birth to them. She nursed them. She swaddled them. She laughed with them and she cried with them and they were comforted by her voice. She watched over them as they grew. She taught them. She cherished those boys as only a mother could. And now... She's keeping the buzzards away from their bodies. And she's doing it alone. And we're meant to feel her pain as we read this story. We're meant to remember that death is always an enemy. It is always sad and wrong and tragic. No matter the circumstances. But there's also a little hint in this verse about the intentions of God in this story. And I want you to see it because I think it's extremely important. The men are dead. The atonement has been made. Blood has been shed. But the rain has still not come. 
God has not yet sent the rain. And I think the writer includes that fact intentionally to leave the question unanswered. Was God happy with this atonement or not? Is this what God wanted? The text doesn't say. Now, God told David that the famine was a result of Saul's sin, but God did not prescribe a solution, did he? Did God say, do this, kill these men? He did not. Seven men are dead, but the rain still has not fallen. Verse 11. When David was told that Riz, or what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, the seven men. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. In other words, now the rain falls. Not in direct response to the deaths of the seven men. Instead, God responded to the burial of their bones along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Okay? So what the text says is that David noticed the actions of this grieving mother, Rizpah. He noticed the respect that she showed the bodies of these dead men. And David, by seeing that, was compelled to show respect for those men as well. They were given a proper burial along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And then God healed the land. So, what do we do with this story? <laughs> How, as Christians living in the 21st century, appalled, honestly, by the story, what do we do with it? How do we explain it? Why does it matter? Well, I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that this is a really offensive story. It offends us because it's not clean. And we would really rather our religion be kind of clean and attractive, right? There's nothing attractive about a grieving mother protecting her son's corpses from carrion birds. Just not a pretty picture. This is brutal and it's ugly. And that is the nature of the atonement. Atonement is ugly because sin is ugly. Atonement is ugly because death is ugly. And God wants us to see it for what it is. He wants it to turn our stomachs. It's supposed to. You can't watch someone die and not feel wrong. But this is the... 
this is the this is the hard part is that sin fools us into thinking it's not a big deal. It tempts us with this counterfeit beauty. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Just do what you want to do. It's not really going to hurt anybody. This is how sin operates in our hearts. It, it, it tries to convince us that it's, that it's actually right for us, that it's beautiful for, for us, that we're just finding our authentic selves, right? Just do, just do it. Just do what feels right. But underneath the mask is death. Probably Solomon, David's son, writes this. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In other words, he's saying that our sin wants to trick us into believing that we're just not that bad, that it's not that bad. And in reality, he's saying that sin is a banquet in the grave. The brutality of the Bible in places like 2 Samuel 21, stories that we really never read, The point of it is to expose sin for what it is. To expose death for what it is. Consider the centrality of the bones in the story. God restored His blessing on the land when the bones were buried. Now why is that? Well, what are bones? I mean, this is, this is gross, but bones are the last tissue remaining from a dead body, right? Meaning that everything else has been stripped away. Everything else has been exposed. And the way we do funerals and things these days, like we make it as hard as possible for the bones to come. Like we put the body, we embalm it, we put it in a casket, we put it in a vault, and then we put it in the ground. Like nothing's getting to that, right? Because we're trying to delay the inevitable as long as possible because one day all that's going to be left is bones and then eventually nothing but dust. But that's the thing. Everything else has been exposed. Rizpah protected the bodies as long as she could, but in the end there was nothing left but the bones because that's what they buried. One way or another, we will all be exposed. That's the message. That's the message of the text. Our guilt demands blood. Our sin leaves us exposed before a holy God. And we will be exposed. But, just as even the bones of Saul, the one who caused this problem, Even his bones were buried in hope in the land of promise. Even Saul's bones. And so also we, no matter who we are, 
no matter what we've done, we believe as Christians that we are buried spiritually in Christ. If we're united to Him, if you by faith are united to Christ, we believe, the Scriptures teach, that we are buried spiritually in Christ and that one day we will be buried physically in the ground. But our hope is also tied to an atonement. But not one that we initiated or that we provided. Because nothing that we would kill, not even ourselves, is enough to provide for it. God provided the atonement. We broke the covenant, but God Himself bore the curse of the covenant. Jesus died hanging on a cross on a hill before the Lord. And while that previous sacrifice was not actually acceptable to God in any real sense, that one was. And yet his death was just as ugly, uglier even because it was not deserved. But it was sufficient for the grace and mercy of God to fall on his people like rain, filling our dry and empty souls with the waters of life. And I don't think there's any greater place to see that promise and the connection between 2 Samuel 21 and the bones and the promise of the gospel, all of it kind of woven together in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) In other words, I don't know. You know. And God said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now listen, some of you may be here and you're like, I do not buy any of this. And honestly, part of it may be that when you hear stories like this from the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, You're sort of offended by the Bible's way of explaining the problems in this world. And even the solution that is offered in the atonement of Jesus, right? Because it seems like this thousands of year old, you know, violent, weird story, right? It's just not pretty. It's just not a happy story from beginning to end. It's not. But here's the message for you. If you would just indulge me for two minutes. Even if the rest of it is just blah, I don't don't buy it. When you have felt the sting of this world, when you have suffered deeply, and when you know that things just aren't right, 
when you've witnessed the power of what Christians call sin, whatever you want to call that, just people being evil, when you see the death around us, and even in yourself, and you've felt the emptiness and the curse of it, your only two options in that moment are to believe that there is no purpose in any of it. It's just the way things are. Or else you might be more likely to embrace God's version of the story. And I think the Rizpahs of the world understand this. They're not questioning God because they've suffered. And this is the way our thought process goes, right? It's like, well, people suffer and and those people are less likely to believe in God. Actually, that's not true. And the reason it's not true is because they know that in the end, God is the only one with the power to right the wrongs of the world. The wrongs that they have felt, that they have grieved, that they have suffered. He is the only one who has the power, if he's there, to put flesh back on dry bones. He is the only one that has the power to give Rizpah her sons back again one day. He is the only way that I get to see my grandmother again. It's either that or nothing. I don't believe that God was happy with the deaths of these men. But they do teach us something about the darkness of this world, the dire circumstances that we face, and even the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ. So how is it that I believe in God when there is so much wrong with the world, so much darkness and death and misery? For me, it's actually quite simple. I start with the resurrection of Jesus and everything else falls into place. If Jesus rose again, then the Bible is true. If He didn't, Stop wasting your time with all of this. But I believe He did. I believe He did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I also believe that faith is a gift. It's something that You have to provide for us just as You provide life. Dry bones can't make themselves live. I have no power to bring life back to death. To give life to something that is dead. Not of myself, not of anyone in this room. I have no power to persuade with my words. I have no power to right the wrongs, but you do. The voice that told Jesus to rise... Is the same voice, the same power that has authority over life and death. And you can speak to us. You can speak to our hearts. You can speak to our minds. You can do that right now and convince us and wake us up 
and give us new life. I pray that you would do that. Not for my sake, not for my glory, but for yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand.